Hey gang, welcome back to R&R Rounds. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this is episode five. Five! <clears throat> Today, we're gonna put some resuscitation back into rural and remote resuscitation rounds. But first, let me start with a question. What does a shoulder dislocation and PEA have in common? The answer, this case. So this is something that happened in winter this year, and it was in the emergency department at Fort St. Nowhere. My colleague, we're gonna call him Dr. Dave, was on in emergency, and it was a busy day, and this fellow came into the department, let's call him Sven, and Sven is a 60-year-old male who is an immigrant and has a diet that primarily consists of garlic, and he avoids doctors like the plague. But Sven has today picked up a snowball, thrown it, and has dislocated his shoulder. And legitimately, it is dislocated. So at triage, a shoulder x-ray is ordered. Sven goes off to x-ray when his turn comes up, and in front of the x-ray tech, he says, oh, my chest really hurts, clutches his chest, and falls down dead. PEA. So Dr. Dave, being a competent doctor, picks this fellow up, puts him into the resuscitation room, and off we go on a nice resuscitation adventure. Now, side note, this is a resuscitation podcast, and I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this, you already have some degree of familiarization with ACLS. So I won't be going into the nuts and bolts of that too much today. Anyway, suffice it to say that in this particular instance of Fort St. Nowhere, the nurses are very experienced and the team does a fantastic job. The patient receives high quality CPR, a paramedic team is there, bag valve mask is attempted and successful, IV access is established, and epinephrine is administered. And at that point, I'm called in because I'm the anesthetist on call, and it's a logical thing to call that second physician in for something like a cardiac arrest. So when I arrive about five minutes into this resuscitation, this is the picture that I'm walking into. All those basic nuts and bolts of ACLS are underway and being conducted in a high quality manner. So what do I do? How can I help and contribute to the optimal outcome in this particular situation? Well, in my mind, I go through the ABCs. And A, the patient is receiving bag mask ventilation, and there is a inline end tidal CO2 monitor in place, which is showing a nice solid waveform that is very reassuring. And so the only thing I can really do to optimize that is to intubate. So I intubate, and it's pretty straightforward. Best practice is to not interrupt CPR and just slide the tube in, and that's what I attempted to do. The only wrinkle was that the light in the laryngoscope was dead, and so the nursing staff had to scramble and find me a second laryngoscope with a light. During that time, we just continued with CPR and bag mask ventilation, no big deal. So what's the real advantage to intubating a patient in this circumstance? And the answer is you can now have continuous and asynchronous CPR with ventilation. Now we can switch from a 30 and two pattern to just a continuous CPR rate of 100 to 120 beats per minute. Our end tidal CO2 monitoring becomes a little bit more reliable because now we're essentially using a closed circuit and the person doing the ventilation can focus on an appropriate rhythm that is not tied to a certain number of cycles of CPR. So oxygenation has been optimized. Okay, so that's A and B taken care of. Now what about C? So about that time is the second or third rhythm check and Dr. Dave picks up a femoral pulse, which is fantastic. And so we hold CPR and we attempt to get a blood pressure and the monitor shows that the patient is now in a wide complex rhythm at about 110 beats per minute. Now, if there was a Yelp rating for a non-invasive blood pressure cuff measurement, I think it would rate about one and a half stars. 
Let's face it, whenever you have a patient whose blood pressure is above the normal range by a significant margin or below the normal range by a significant margin, these things are terrible. They often have to cycle multiple times. By that point, they may have timed out, and so they deflate completely and then start the cycle again. And by the time they actually spit out a blood pressure reading, I'm not sure I really believe it. Anyway, such was the case in this particular instance. And the blood pressure was 82 on 46. So it might be tempting at this point to give high fives all around. I mean, we have a patient who has a pulse, is producing end tidal CO2, and is even generating a blood pressure. But that would be very premature, as it was in this case, because within a minute or two, this patient rearrested and we lost that femoral pulse. So back the team went to organize CPR. And at this point, Dr. Dave and I had a quick discussion about what was going on and what Dr. Dave's gut feeling was in terms of the diagnosis and the cause of this PEA. So that's when the story came out about this shoulder dislocation and then the sudden onset chest pain, grabbing the chest and dropping. Dr. Dave's feeling, which was very appropriate, was that this is likely an MI. And so we had a rapid discussion about whether this is something we should be thrombolizing as this patient was going back into this wide complex PEA that now had no pulse. At the same time, I was asking myself, why is it that we got the pulse back, at least transiently, and then we lost it again? And my best thought at that point was the effects of the CPR as well as the epinephrine causing maybe a better perfusion of the myocardium. This fit hand in hand with an MI as a possible etiology. So we asked for two things. We asked for the TNK to be brought and mixed up, and we also asked for another nurse to mix up some norepinephrine in the event that we got another pulse back so that we could initiate the norepinephrine and stabilize that blood pressure rather than leaving the patient to suffer in a hypotensive type situation such as the 84 on 46. Now, of course, all these things take time, and it's really easy for us as physicians to stand there and watch others perform CPR and mix up drugs, but that's not really the best use of our time. So at this point, I brought the ultrasound machine in and I examined what was going on, which also is a way of rapidly ruling out a whole bunch of the H's and T's. Now, what's the best way to apply ultrasound in a shock or cardiac arrest situation? Well, it really depends on who you ask because there are multiple protocols, but currently my favorite protocol is actually a Canadian-born system called EGLS. That stands for Echo Guided Life Support. And this is what I applied. EGLS starts by ruling out pneumothorax by having a look at the lungs, and we had perfect lung sliding, so I was happy with that. Next, you go on to the subxiphoid view and look for a pericardial effusion. And lo and behold, this patient had a moderate pericardial effusion, which surprised us. Now, side note, when you're trying to examine someone with ultrasound and CPR is ongoing, it is quite challenging. And so, really, I'm not sure I would have seen all that much in the heart had there not been a pericardial effusion. But happily, around this time, there was a second return of spontaneous circulation. And at this point, we were prepared. We had the norepinephrine ready to go, and we had an opportunity now to determine what was actually going on in the heart, since the heart was beating on its own. And I was able to get what's called the subxiphoid four-chamber view, which is kind of like the poor man's version of the apical four-chamber. And this demonstrated actually a reasonable left ventricular function. It was a bit stunned, but it wasn't that bad. The heart was definitely tachycardic though, which is often a feature in tamponade. But what I really wanted to see was what was going on with the IVC. And inferior vena cava that is distended 
is suggestive of obstructive shock and therefore pretty much confirmatory of a tamponade physiology as compared to just an isolated pericardial effusion. And this patient had that, a dilated distended IVC. So at this point, now we're thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not an MI, maybe it is a sudden onset pericardial tamponade. It's time to drain this thing. Now, I don't know what your experience is, but in the eight or nine pericardial tamponades that I've drained in my career, yeah, no, I'm totally kidding. This was the first one that I ever had the opportunity to drain. And so what we did was we called for a spinal needle, mainly because of how long spinal needles are. As you know, they're often 10 to 15 centimeters in length. And although an effusion may not be that far underneath the skin, it's nice to have that extra length and that rigidity of say a 22 gauge spinal needle. On the other hand, a typical IV catheter is only maybe three or four centimeters long and that often will not be enough to get into the effusion. Now, of course, spinal needles are not typically stocked in the resuscitation cart. So someone had to run to the equipment and dig through it and find it. But when they arrived back, we had, I think, a 22-gauge spinal needle, which seemed to do fine. And I proceeded to drain this under the ultrasound guidance in the subxiphoid window. Now, bear in mind that I really like ultrasound, and I use it all the time. So I have a lot, a lot of experience with ultrasound-guided procedures. And so I was able to actually follow the tip of this needle and watch it enter into the pericardium. And at that point, we attached a syringe, and we pulled back, and we got frank blood. Now that's a bit disconcerting because one doesn't typically expect to find frank blood in the pericardium if a patient hasn't recently received open heart surgery. But nevertheless, that's what we were getting. And I was positive that my needle tip was actually in the effusion and not in the ventricle, which I think is a very important distinction. Now really, in order to drain an effusion, the best thing to do is to put in a central line catheter or equivalent where you've got a soft, flexible tube in the pericardium and you can just continue to draw out blood. In actual fact, we were using this tiny spinal needle just to try and relieve some pressure. And so we drew out about 20 or perhaps about 30 milliliters of blood. And this may be represented a third of the volume of the pericardial effusion. But if it were truly tamponade, it would have been enough to relieve significant amounts of pressure and to improve cardiac function. Unfortunately, it did not. So at this point, the blood pressure cuff was cycling and not doing so great, and we were getting a pressure of maybe 95 or so systolic. The norepinephrine had been started at whatever the lowest dose was according to the nursing protocols, and subsequent blood pressure was a little bit lower, and this patient then rearrested. So darn, what do we do now? Well, back to CPR, back to supporting the respiration, back to regular epinephrine, and at that point, we decided to put in an arterial line. The thing with NIBPs is that with their crazy cycling, you're never really sure of what's going on and any information you get may already be five minutes old. Whereas an arterial line will give you beat to beat, moment to moment information on the blood pressure. And that makes it much more useful when you're titrating something like a vasopressor. So we called for an art line and I began to put the art line in while Dr. Dave continued to oversee the arrest. As we were doing this, we ran the list of the H's and T's. So, Hypovolemia, we were taking care of that. This patient was already being bolus. Hypoxemia, we were taking care of that. The patient was intubated, receiving high flow oxygen. Acidosis, you never know to what degree that's affecting things. And so we discussed bicarb. And I think we even gave an AMPA bicarb at some point. Hyper or hypokalemia, there was really nothing in the history to suggest this as being worrisome. And shortly thereafter, the trauma blood work that was drawn at the beginning of the rest came back and demonstrated a normal potassium. 
hypothermia, the patient certainly didn't have a uh, temperature outside of the normal range, and the blood sugar I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was normal as well. One or two of the nurses knew this patient quite well from the community, and they felt that he was not someone who was known to be taking toxins, so we felt that was very low on the list of priorities. We knew that there was a pericardial effusion, and it was suspicious for tamponade. Thanks to ultrasound, we also knew that there was no pneumothorax, let alone attention pneumothorax. MI or PE were still on the list of possible diagnoses, and an EKG, which had been taken during one of the periods of return of spontaneous circulation, actually demonstrated some widespread ST segment changes, suggestive of an ischemic type picture. And in terms of trauma, or more specifically hemorrhagic shock, we didn't see any cause to be worried about occult blood loss in this particular patient. So as we talked the picture over, initially we had thought that the diagnosis was likely an MI or a PE. However, we put that on hold when we discovered the pericardial effusion, and I stand by the fact that it made sense to drain that pericardial effusion in the event that it was tamponade. We had done that, we'd taken a significant amount of fluid out from around the heart, and it hadn't made any difference. The patient had just rearrested. So at this point, we were now focusing on, again, either a MI or perhaps a PE. And so the TNK was available and we decided to go ahead and give it. Now my rule of thumb is that once I spend $2,000 on a thrombolytic in a cardiac arrest, I have to at least give it a reasonable amount of time to work. And so we committed to a further 20 minutes of this resuscitation just to give lots of circulation time to the thrombolytic. And it worked again. We got return of spontaneous circulation and the arterial blood pressure, which was correlating well with the NIBP, was showing a pressure of about 104. Bear in mind that we had norepinephrine supporting this now at this point. The diastolic pressure was 55. And so that is sufficient enough to be perfusing the myocardium. So even if the myocardium is stunned in a hypoxemic state, that elevated diastolic pressure should be enough to perfuse that left ventricle myocardium and begin to resuscitate it. Unfortunately, the blood pressure just continued to sag and sag, and so we went up on the norepinephrine. And it's always interesting when you are working with nursing staff in a resuscitation because nurses go to what they know best. I mean, everybody goes to what they know best, but for nurses, it is these charts and policies in terms of how to titrate medications. They love to pull it up on the computer and follow it line by line. But in actual fact, that isn't really in the best interests of the arrested patient. So I ended up overriding the policy and just asking the nurses to double the norepinephrine. And each time the blood pressure would sag or I wasn't happy, I would just double the norepinephrine. And so this went on for a few minutes, but unfortunately that blood pressure continued to sag and the patient re-arrested again. And so the cycle went on. CPR, resuscitation of the heart, a little bit of epinephrine, the patient comes back, we have a pulse, we have a good blood pressure, we try and support it with pressors, and then it crashes again. In the end, 20 minutes went by, and unfortunately we just were not able to keep this patient in a spontaneous rhythm. And so in consultation with Dr. Dave and the rest of the team, we decided that there was really nothing else that we hadn't exhausted, and that it was time to let this poor fellow go. Now, it's really easy in medicine to take a case like this and dissect it and just analyze it from a scientific and educational standpoint. But I think it's really important to just pause and think about the humanity here as well. I mean, as interesting a learning case as this was, the fact is this poor fellow, Sven, ended up losing his life on this particular day in this particular circumstance. 
And I think it behooves us as human beings ourselves when we take our doctor's hats off to just pause and reflect on that. Anyway, despite our best efforts, we were not able to help Sven in this particular circumstance. And as I've thought about it after the fact, I think the most likely diagnosis was actually aortic dissection. Dissection is one of those very occult, difficult to diagnose conditions that can certainly cause sudden collapse, as is what happened to Sven. It can cause that sudden onset chest pain as well. And if you have a type A dissection that's affecting the aortic root, you can certainly get bleeding into the pericardial sac, which would explain why there is frank blood in and around the heart causing a pericardial fusion and likely some tamponade physiology. Furthermore, the dissection itself can cause a peeling back of layers of the aorta causing compression of the coronary vasculature, which can certainly lead to widespread ST changes in the ECG. And so the picture fits. And also when I look at the differential as I did here in the podcast of all the other possible causes, we really did a thorough job, or at least as thorough a job as one can in a rural emergency department to rule out the other common reversible causes. And therein lies the key word, reversible. The H's and T's are not an exhaustive differential diagnosis of all causes of cardiac arrest, but rather a short list of relatively easily reversible causes of cardiac arrest. However, diagnoses such as aortic dissection are not reversible. And truly, even in 2021, if this fellow had been in a tertiary care or quaternary care emergency department and suffered this fate, I don't think he would have survived. Because frankly, if someone's going to have a massive dissection of the aorta, unless they're already lying on the table with a vascular surgeon standing over them with a knife, I really don't think their odds of survival are very good. Now, obviously this is all speculation on my part, but nevertheless, I think there's a lot of useful tidbits we can take away from this particular case. So the learning objectives and the summary all wrapped up into one given how far we are into this episode already. Number one, when it comes to cardiac arrest, you have to be aggressive and you have to move quickly. And the more hands you have on deck, the better. So do whatever you can to get extra physicians into your rural resuscitation room as best you can. If you have the bandwidth, you want to have someone cover the H's and T's as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. Personally, I absolutely hate the acronym H's and T's. Not the content that it represents, but rather the mnemonic itself. I think that any mnemonic where there are five of something is almost impossible for the human brain to remember when it's under stress and potentially at three o'clock in the morning. Personally, when I stand at the bedside and I try and remember the H's, it goes something like this. Hypoxia, hydrogen ion, hyperkalemia, uh, 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 because the mnemonic is useless because it doesn't give you anything to remember those fourth or fifth H's. Happily, there are other mnemonics available. And the one that I like to use is called MEX-DEATH. That's M-E-C-H-S, DEATH. And that stands for MI, embolism, cardiac tamponade, hemoneumothorax, a little bit funny there, but bear with me, and S is shock, as in hypovolemia. Death, drugs, electrolytes, acidosis, temperature, and hypoxemia. Maybe you like that better, maybe you don't, but for me, I find it helps me keep better track of which H's and T's I've forgotten. 
The best bet though is to have those ACLS posters on the wall and just read off the list with your finger one at a time so you don't miss anything. The second thing I want to talk about is how to leverage POCUS in a cardiac arrest situation. I referenced the Echo Guided Life Support Program earlier in this episode, and I stand by the fact that it's an excellent program. I take no money from it, but it is run by a couple of friends of mine, and I have taught it once before. It's a one-day course that is even available to take online, and it really helps not just with your ultrasound skills, but also your understanding of the physiology and pathophysiology behind shock and cardiac arrest. Regardless of whether you choose to use EGLS or just the EFAST or the RUSH exam or anything else, ultrasound has the potential and will help you narrow down your diagnosis much more quickly and precisely than historical means. In fact, if you want to improve yourself as an emergency physician, or really any type of physician, I honestly think the lowest hanging fruit, the biggest bang for your buck, is to invest in your ultrasound education. And my third and final point is the role of procedures in arrest, or rather, how you should approach procedures in arrest. This particular case was the very first time I have ever drained a pericardial tamponade. And I'll tell you right now, it was really, really simple especially when you have ultrasound and can see exactly where your needle's going. But truly, that pericardial fluid-filled sac was only three centimeters below the skin. Even without ultrasound, I think it would have been very difficult to miss. The key though is to remember, if you're approaching it from the subxiphoid window, to keep your needle traveling very anteriorly, just on the inside edge of the ribs. This is because the heart is an interior organ. And in the heat of the moment, it might be easy to angle that needle in at 45 degrees or even deeper and completely miss the heart. But if you keep it shallow and aim up towards the left nipple, I don't think there's any possible way I could have missed. That said, when the syringe began to fill with frank blood, I was ever so glad that I had done it under ultrasound and I could actually visualize the needle tip in the effusion and not inside the ventricle itself. When you work in a rural eMERGE, there is always the chance that you're going to need to do a new and potentially scary procedure. But truly, I think that a procedure performed in cardiac arrest should be one of the lowest stress situations because the patient is already dead. It's not like your procedure can make them more dead than they currently are. So especially in a cardiac arrest situation, be bold. There is absolutely no time like the present to learn to do that procedure and to do it quickly. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Hopefully you agree this was a real resuscitation topic to balance out some of the other more generalized rural eMERGE type topics. As always, I welcome your feedback and look forward to presenting another case to you real soon. Bye for now.